This is Ariane with Hello Submarine. This is episode three. I am on my own today. I'm in the middle of a seven-day quarantine. I have finally, after over two years, contracted the COVID, and I am luckily doing fine. However, I do have to isolate and... It's not that I haven't been at all sick. I just recognize that I'm very privileged to have been less sick than many. So I'm riding out this quarantine. Um, It's the long weekend here in Canada, so that's kind of a bummer. But again, it could be a lot worse. So I'm here, and I thought I would just try an episode on my own. Um, I've been doing quite a lot of deep diving just because I'm bored and (laughs) I thought I would take you down the rabbit hole that I've been on in the last couple of days, which has been everywhere from the dark web to uh, more far-right extremism and some interesting solutions that people are putting forth. And yeah, so I'm just kind of going to dive in. So this uh, this whole thing started yesterday when I was curious about the dark web. And I've been curious about the dark web for a long time. But I've also been really afraid of Googling it because I thought that the whole thing was just illegal. And I was wrong about that. It is not entirely illegal. There is an absolute metric fuck ton of illegal shit going on on the dark web. But in and of itself, it's not an illegal thing to do. Um. So why don't we start there? Let's start by defining what the dark web is. Now, in order to do that, we first need to define the deep web. So the deep web is any part of the internet that is not indexable by a search engine. So basically shit you can't Google. This would be, for example, like medical records or private account data, banking information, you know, email information, stuff like that. Just, again, anything that you can't look up. And this shocked the fucking hell out of me. The deep web makes up 96% of the internet. 96! So the part of the internet that we see that we're used to, which is called either the surface web or the clear web, makes up only roughly about 5% of the internet which is just insane to think about because, you know, we think of the internet that we can access as this huge expanse of wealth of information, and it is, but it's just such a small portion of what's actually out there floating around in cyberspace. So uh, that was the first thing I found really fascinating, first thing of many. Um, And so then, you know, the dark web, what's the dark web? Okay, so... The dark web also makes up about 5% of the internet, and it is part of the deep web. So that means that it is not accessible via search engine. You can't look it up. So how do you get onto the dark web? Well, you need to have a little browser called Tor. And Tor uses something called onion routing. And from the Wikipedia article on onion routing, I'm just going to quote here, Onion routing is a technique for anonymous communication over a computer network. 
In an onion network, messages are encapsulated in layers of encryption analogous to layers of an onion. The encrypted data is transmitted through a series of network nodes called onion routers, each of which peels away a single layer, uncovering the data's next destination. End quote. So it uses this like very sophisticated, heavy-duty level of encryption so that when you go on the dark web, you are basically entirely anonymous. I say basically because, you know, the CIA, FBI, what have you, they do, you know, conduct investigations about people doing incredibly illegal shit on the dark web, and they are able in some cases to pinpoint who's doing what, so it's not totally foolproof, but compared to the regular internet where we're getting constantly tracked and where it's very easy to pinpoint who's doing what, this is like, you know, a totally different type of experience for people. And so people who are very concerned about their data or, you know, just are, have a bit of a tinfoil hat on, and not that that's a judgment, I understand that we are being tracked like crazy, so it's not it's not necessarily a bad thing to have a bit of a tinfoil hat on about, about this sort of stuff. Um, those people, I think, find the dark web very attractive because they're anonymous and they're going to stay anonymous. And because of this very uh, highly encrypted nature of the dark web, it's very slow it's unreliable, and it's full of sketchy shit. Now, I thought that it was all illegal, and it turns out it's not. Um, there's many illegal things happening on the dark web, and you know you could probably safely assume that most of what's happening on the dark web is illegal, but it's not illegal to just go on it or to access it. Um, and so I started by just like Googling, like, what are some of the legal things a person can do on the dark web? So some of the things you can do that are not going to get you in trouble are political discussion forums, or really any discussion forums. Like there's, there's just a whole host of discussion forums on the dark web where you can go and comment uh, completely anonymously and not worry that it's going to get tracked back to you in some capacity. Um, there's something called ARG puzzles. So ARG, that stands for Alternate Reality Games. These also exist on the clear web or surface web. And they're a fascinating type of game. I don't even know how to explain this, but I'm going to try. Basically, you interact with videos or various other forms of media. Maybe it's on YouTube. Maybe it's on social media. Maybe it's a bit of both. And it's Somebody who's created this game, they're called the Puppet Master, has created these videos and these forms of media and put them in all these different places on the internet. And you, you have to go find them and you have to go interact with them and you have to sort of discover the rules of the game as you go. And all of them are different. There's no like set rules that are going to apply here and, and also in another game. And a lot of them are really creepy so if you're kind of like a horror movie fan or something like that, this is probably going to appeal to you. So like I said, they exist on the clear web as well. But there's this like underbelly, like arg puzzle world on the dark web where it like gets very scary. Um, 
and yeah, so you, you go interact with all of these videos. I think the Puppet Master, like, kind of puts out more content as people engage more. So it's, like, a really engaging kind of game where, like, you as a player are, like, part of the game creation because your interaction with the game is going to affect the subsequent chapters of the game, if that makes sense. Look it up. Um, Arg puzzles. Google it. It seems fun. I think I'm going to try one sometime with a friend, so I'm not afraid because I'm a bit of a chicken. I like to be scared, but I like to do it with the comfort of at least one other person because, yeah, I'm not going to be good afterward, (laughs) at least not for a bit. So, yeah, Arg Puzzles, something you can find on the dark web that's perfectly legal. Um, WikiLeaks Uploading. So if you're going to be a whistleblower and you want to upload some private document, you can go and do that on the dark web, which kind of makes sense, right? You want to do that pretty anonymously. Um, Shadow wallets. So this is a method of anonymizing cryptocurrency. Basically, if you've done something illegal with your crypto, like you've bought something that you shouldn't have bought, you're on the black market, um... You can do something called tumbling, which basically removes identifying markers from your crypto that could be used to track its sort of unsavory history, if you will. So uh, shadow wallets and tumbling your cryptocurrency is not illegal, but you've presumably done something with your crypto that was illegal to get here. So we'll call that a gray area. Interestingly, Facebook has launched a version of its website on the dark web. Um, You still need to put in your credentials to log in, which I mean, you're no longer anonymous once you do that, but you won't be getting tracked by all these other websites and software that you would be getting tracked by if you were using the clear web version of Facebook. Another super interesting use case of the dark web um, that kind of exists in a legal gray area is for countries that have very oppressive governments, like we're talking North Korea, China, Iran, etc., um, where they don't have access to the regular clear web. It's all being censored or tracked heavily and people get put in jail for looking up certain things or bypassing these things in any way. Um the dark web is a way to kind of anonymously go and do things and learn about things and potentially interact with the internet in a way that they can't on the clear web um, or on their, you know, very restricted version of the clear web. So in that way, um, I think the dark web is providing a really interesting and useful service to very oppressed citizens of these countries and to be clear, I'm not advocating that any of them go on the dark web. I don't think I don't think anybody should be on the dark web unless you know what you're doing, because it's just it's the Wild West of the Internet. And it is um, sketchy in way more ways than one. And so, you know, if somebody were in, in this in these countries and they got caught going on the dark web, that would be, I'm assuming, a very big deal. So not advocating for it, but for people who know what they're doing, for people who are very tech savvy and who can kind of protect themselves when going on the dark web, I think that's a really interesting use case. Another really interesting use of the dark web is there are a bunch of scientific papers that I guess are behind a paywall that 
people don't have access to. And I mean, on the clear web. And then the, uh, the authors will go and upload the papers to different sites on the dark web. So one such site is called Sci-Hub. Um, there's also one called the American Journal of Freestanding Research Psychology. And yeah, they'll just throw up their papers, which is fully legal because they're the ones that wrote them. And then they're free to access for people, which is great because having all of this research behind a paywall is, in my opinion, super fucked up. We should all have access to all of the information about what is being learned about and what is being discovered. And so I think this is a really noble use case of the dark web. And I'm really pleased to learn that, you know, scientists are out there trying to get their research to people that want to read about it. All right. So we've talked a lot about some of the legal, neutral, even noble things happening on the dark web. But I want to get into why this place has such a sketchy ass reputation, because obviously it does. We all, you know, shudder a little bit when we think of the dark web. And I want to get into why. Um, There's a lot of illegal activity happening there, which makes sense with its high level of encryption and anonymity. It's kind of a perfect place for people to do sketchy things and to remain anonymous. So I'm on a website called findlaw.com, and I'm just going to list off some of the things that are here. So one thing you can do is you can hire a hitman. So if you want somebody to die, you can you can go ahead and and buy that on the dark web. You can get involved in blackmail and extortion. So that's threatening to release some sensitive information unless the victim pays a certain amount of Bitcoin. Um, there's obviously drug sales, illegal drug sales. So whole black market for drugs. There's a whole black market for illegal firearms and weapons. Um, there is sex trafficking of humans, which is horrifying. And uh, child pornography, of course, also super horrifying. Um, and then terrorism. So, you know, extremists planning and plotting online. So, you know, the, the dark web being anonymous, at least to the best of its ability, is something that really attracts criminal activity. And it's what makes it such a strong breeding ground for all of the sketchy things that, you know, I just listed off. Um, and investigating crimes on the dark web is, is tricky. Like it's definitely not the same as the clear web where we've got sort of tried and true practices in place for catching people, even if they're being careful, even if they're using VPNs, um, if the FBI wants to find you on the clear web, you're probably going to get found. But on the dark web, it's a different story. So one of the main ways, according to this findlaw.com article that people, get caught on the dark web is people will go undercover and they'll sort of pretend to be part of the community. And then in that way, they will hope that these perpetrators are going to make a mistake or give some type of identifying information that they can use to track and to eventually shut down some of these illegal activities. So it's, it's a struggle to monitor 
illegal activity on the dark web, as you can probably imagine. So in terms of terrorism and extremism happening on the dark web, um, it's really not that different from what's happening on the clear web. It's just that it is anonymous in a way that the clear web is not. It's encrypted in a way that the clear web is not. It provides a real safe haven for terrorist activity. Um, but it's it's not like there's this whole other world of things happening on the dark web that we haven't already seen. Um, we talked about in our last episode how extremists and terrorists were some of the earliest adopters of the internet because they recognized its potential for spreading propaganda and for recruitment and for planning and all of this stuff. And that hasn't changed as it moved into the dark web. It's just that it's become safer for them and and harder to track their activity. Um, Another thing that they're doing, I guess, is their fundraising, which they also do on the clear web. But on the dark web, this is cryptocurrency fundraising, which is kind of interesting. But many, many terrorist organizations are using the dark web now. They're migrating away from the clear web, even services like 4chan and Reddit, which are like not monitored in the same way as Facebook and which are more anonymous than something like, say, Facebook, are still being, it's still possible to, to track on the clear web. And so the, the movement to the dark web is, you know, kind of obvious. Like it, it's, it's clear that that's what they're going to do if they have a safer space to organize and they're going to move there because otherwise they're going to get shut down. I just want to circle back to Bitcoin for a second here because I found a publication called Going Darker, The Challenge of Darknet Terrorism. It's on wilsoncenter.org and it talks about something that is different on the dark web in terms of the terrorist extremist landscape. Um, One of the things they're doing is they're fundraising via Bitcoin, which allows them to circumvent the banking system, which has, I guess, measures in place to like stop people from funding terrorists. This is one way that they can get money that they can't do outside of the dark web. And so there's all of these donations coming in via Bitcoin that are helping to purchase weapons and to facilitate training and to to basically just support these groups financially. So um, I know I said before that there's nothing really all that different happening on the dark web in terms of terrorism and extremism, but this is one thing that is is different. And I think, you know, the funding of these organizations is a really big deal. So I just want to kind of walk back what I said, because this is a this is a pretty, a pretty dangerous thing to to sort of come out of of these groups moving onto the dark web. So now I would like to make a somewhat ungraceful pivot. As I've mentioned, I am in quarantine. I have COVID, so I have just been doing a lot of deep diving and going in a lot of different directions. So, you know, initially I started looking into the dark web and that was kind of the goal was to maybe do an episode on that. But I ended up coming across a YouTube video that had dark web in the title. And so I thought I was watching a video about the dark web, but I watched the whole thing and it was not about the dark web. And it took me in a different direction. It took me in the direction of 
what are some of the solutions for dealing with far-right extremism? And this particular video was about dealing with far-right extremism online, on the clear web. But I then went and watched a documentary afterward that this this video sort of reminded me that I'd been meaning to watch. And so, yeah, we're going to take a, a step away from the dark web now and jump into a different conversation and hopefully this all flows together smoothly in the end. Thanks for your patience. I was looking up extremism via the dark web and things took a bit of a turn and I ended up on a YouTube video by CogX. I'd love to define what CogX is for you. I'm on their YouTube channel here. Okay, so on their website, it says, learn from thought leadership that matters to you. Learning has never been so simple. CogX aims to provide the quickest and simplest way to get up to speed on topics that matter to you. CogX serves you a hyper-personalized feed of 30-second insights from the world's best podcasts, from the latest news to expert views on thousands of subjects. Knowledge is power. Okay, so that's what CogX is. But anyway, they have this YouTube channel that I ended up on because I was looking for extremism via the dark web. And the video I landed on was called Cyber and Defense, the Dark Web, Violence and Radicalization Online. Now, I thought I was watching a video about the dark web, but I watched the whole thing. It was 42 minutes. And they didn't talk about the dark web at all. So I think when they say the dark web in this title, they're just referring to sort of like the very dark nature of the web. Um, kind of a questionable title here since the dark web is very much its own thing. Um, but either way, this was a really good watch. Uh, there was this woman named uh, Vidya Ramalingam, and she is the founder of a company called Moonshot, which is a very interesting organization that I looked into. And what Moonshot is doing is they are tracking search engine activity by people who they would consider at risk for becoming radicalized or falling into a violent extremism um, online group in some way. And they are providing solutions for this. And so so the, the description of the video is, the internet is the wild west of our time. With no standardization, it's the perfect place to promote extremist ideas. In this session, we look at the burgeoning counter-radicalization industry, how we can prevent conspiracy-laced hate and protect vulnerable individuals. So the video features Vidya Ramalingam, who is the founder of Moonshot, and Claudine Tinsman, who's a doctor of philosophy candidate in cybersecurity at Oxford. She's the moderator. So the video focuses mostly on Vidya and uh, Moonshot, her company. And I want to talk about Moonshot because it's super interesting. So I'm on their website here and their kind of mission statement is Moonshot is a tech-driven solutions provider harnessing the power of the internet for good. We develop new tech and methodologies to expose threats, disrupt malicious actors, and protect vulnerable audiences online. We keep the people behind the data in mind always. Working to end online harms means making communities, governments, and businesses safer, both online and off around the world. Now, this video really resonated with me because 
Okay, let's first talk about what Moonshot does. Moonshot, they they track these this search history of people, right? Like obviously this has to be GDPR um, compliant. They can't be, you know, it's 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 in no way they're like they're not doing anything uh, sketchy or illegal with with user data. But what they're doing is they are monitoring certain search phrases and search words for people. Um, so maybe like if somebody is trying to join the KKK. They're going to uh, note that with their software. And what they do is they provide an intervention. So instead of um, all of the search results just coming up for joining the KKK, they provide the ability to speak to somebody. Because through research, what they've learned is that a lot of these people who join these online radical hate groups are actually just looking for a sense of belonging. Like these are these are human beings, right? Like it's so easy to look at a Nazi and just be like, fuck that guy. That guy's insane. That guy's a piece of shit. That guy is not a human, right? And let me be very clear that if if somebody has been affected by racism, they are perfectly, in my mind, allowed to have zero tolerance or zero space for humanizing a Nazi. Like, you don't have to do that, right? But what research is finding is that in order to pull these people back, we do have to see the humanity in them. Because if we don't, and if we just start yelling at them, or if we just start, like, debating them, that actually doesn't work. So this woman, Vidya, she talks a lot about how that doesn't work, and how they initially thought maybe, okay, like, let's give them, like, counterfacts. Let's let's present them with this information and this data that might show them how wrong they are. And through research of, of her with within her company, they discovered no, that doesn't actually work. So what what actually works, knowing that these people are looking for a sense of belonging and a sense of community, is giving them some level of intervention to talk to an actual human being. Like, are you feeling alone? Are you okay? Is something going on in your life? Do you need to talk to somebody? And by doing that, they've actually had quite a lot of success intervening before people take these searches further. So it sounded like to me like they want to have like, and they already do, but their goal is to have like social workers like really on the line, like waiting to interact with these people so that when somebody goes to like search for like how do I join the national socialist movement or you know some other like extremely violent group there can be somebody there like a real person not a bot that'll be like hey let's chat what's up and it's kind of like this really like therapeutic like emotion focused human focused method of just sort of like stopping a person from trying to ease their loneliness in this way that is like not the correct way, right? I was really just like blown away by this woman and her her company because I just it, it resonates so much with me to to humanize people. And again, like I said, if you don't have the capacity to humanize people who are hateful toward you or people that you care about, like fine. I completely understand that and I've I would never try to convince anyone to make space for Nazis, right? Um, but again, as the research seems to suggest, 
that's how you pull people back. Like if you if you want to change somebody's mind, you have to meet them on a human level. You have to see them as a human. And you have to understand that they didn't they weren't just born a Nazi. Like they weren't born full of hate. Something went wrong. Um, and I don't mean that every every person that's hateful had a horrible childhood or anything like that, but something fundamentally is wrong, has gone wrong in their life. And I think for a lot of them, it, it is kind of more simple in that like perhaps they, you know, had an abusive parent. Um, perhaps they themselves experienced a lot of violence at home and joining one of these groups gave them a sense of power and a sense of community and a sense of safety. And if we can understand that about a person, I think we can get a lot farther in potentially changing their mind and not by telling them that they're wrong, but by appealing to their humanity because we are all human at the end of the day. And so this video was really impactful for me. I was very impressed by this work and I just felt like I really wanted to support it and like it makes a lot of sense to me. And then I remembered my cousin Brayden, shout out Brayden, I'm assuming you're listening. <laughs> um, he watched this documentary a while ago. It was made in 2017. He's been telling me to watch it for years. Like it's called White Right Meeting the Enemy. And I am going to talk a bit about that because I just watched it after, again, being told for literal years by Brayden to watch this, this documentary. It's by um, Dia Khan. She's a filmmaker. She's a Muslim woman. And, you know, she's a woman of color. And she basically decided after spending years um, afraid of neo-Nazis and afraid of white supremacists because she's from Norway and she lived in a, a place where there was like quite a presence, I guess, of white supremacy and her family would get terrorized and, you know, she participated in rallies from an early age with her father so she's always been kind of politically minded and very aware of these hate groups that were directed towards her and her family. And she basically said that eventually she got sick of being afraid and she decided to go and talk to these people and try to find out how they got there and to, to get past the hate and get past the ideology and get to the humanity of this person. And for somebody who's been affected by racism to that degree to say, I see or I want to see the humanity in these people and I want to understand them is just something that like, I don't know, it touches my heart in a way that like I really can't describe using English words. Like it's just so powerful and so courageous of her to have done this Um you can watch this, by the way, on TVO, so tvo.org. You can watch it for free. It's just, like, there. You don't have to sign up for anything or download anything. It's just fucking there. And it's this 55-minute documentary of this woman who starts attending these white nationalist rallies and 
getting to know these like famous white nationalists and starting to understand like appealing to their humanity like they they it's so fascinating because right away you can see these people's wheels turning as she's talking to them they're like you can see that they're uncomfortable because she's confronting them with her own humanity that they as humans can see like she's going in she's being incredibly respectful she's not arguing with them she's not trying to debate them she's just asking them thoughtful questions and she asks these questions in relation to herself like at one point she asks one of them like would you deport me and you can see like the struggle that this guy has gotten to know her over this period of time she's been traveling around with him she's been interviewing him and he's so uncomfortable because you can tell that he likes her He's come to really, really fucking like and respect this woman. And he's like, oh, but she's a brown woman. Like, I'm supposed to want this woman deported. This is like everything that I fight for. This is everything that I believe in. But he's having trouble doing it because he cares about her. Because she's been kind to him. And that shit fucking is so powerful. Like, to... To go in and to just treat these people who are objectively awful, who, who have done horrible things, to treat them like humans. Because what that does is it stops people in their tracks. Like they're so busy with this worldview that people of color are the enemy, that when someone who they think is the enemy actually comes up and treats them with respect, they're like, they're very confused. Like, they don't know what to do with that. Um, I'm going to read a quote from Dia Khan that's on a, a Vox interview that she gave um, that kind of describes this. Quote, part of the reason people subscribe to these movements is that they feel shunned in their lives, in their personal lives, or in wider society. These movements are deeply rooted in a sense of victimhood, real or imagined. So if we exclude them, if we shout at them, if we condemn them, that completely feeds into that, and then the monster gets bigger, not smaller, end quote. Like, this is so powerful, like, to understand that. Like, if, if they believe that they're victims, then shunning them and, and arguing with them or screaming at them it's just it's just going to feed into what they already think which is that people of color and the left and women are villains and they will continue to shun them and so this it like hacks their brains they're like they don't know what to do with it i want to read another quote so i'm just going to read this entire question and answer so the interviewer asks i'd like to know what you think we can do to solve the problem of extremism. As you put it in your film, what is the way out of this madness? And Dia Khan responds, quote, it's to not become hysterical. It's to not dance to their instructions. It's to not behave how they want us to behave. They want us to become afraid. They want us to become divided. They want us to join their us versus them thing. On a larger scale, I think we have to resist that. It's an argument for celebrating and nurturing our diversity and nurturing our multicultural society and our pluralism. But on a more concrete, practical level, I think we need to support people who want to leave these groups, because we often underestimate how many people, once they're in it, actually want to leave but find zero support because everybody is so busy condemning these guys that nobody really wants to extend a hand to them and let them get out. I think that's really important. End quote. And again, I'm like just blown away by this woman and her wisdom here, 
because yeah, like if, if people have nowhere to go out to, if people have nobody on the outside of these groups that's willing to support them, why would they leave? Like, I'm just, I'm in awe. I'm in awe of her. And again, I'm not advocating for like, you know, endless radical empathy for these people. I really understand if someone doesn't have the capacity, like not everybody's going to have the capacity. Not everybody is Dia Khan, but like she is on to something. Like she is really, really on to something here. And I think it's kind of profound. She does talk a little bit about empathy having its limits. Um, so the interviewer asks here, quote, I do, however, think it's important to restate that empathy has its limits, and there are many, many people in these movements who cannot be reached and have to be confronted and frankly defeated. And Dia Khan responds, quote, I agree 100%. There were several moments in which I discovered the limits of empathy and was genuinely concerned about my own safety. I remember traveling to a white supremacist training camp somewhere in Tennessee, and there were two or three ex-military guys following me around, telling me right to my face, I'm going to put a fucking bullet through your camera. I'm going to put a fucking bullet through your head if you turn that camera toward me. End quote. So again, this is not an argument for radical empathy for everybody. It's just it's just the sort of human understanding that these are people and many of them maybe don't want to be there and maybe got into it for reasons that if we really like sat down and talked to them would make sense to us, like something like belonging or protection or wanting to feel like they have some level of power or control over their lives. Like in that way, these are very human things. And so it's, it's not about saving everybody. It's not about pulling everybody out of these groups because we're never going to be able to do that. And there are people that are just too far gone, but it's about recognizing that some of them are not. And, you know, by the end of this film, many of the white supremacists that she talked to leave the movement and they leave the movement because of her, because they're like, well, it just didn't fucking make sense anymore to me to hate people like you when you showed me so much kindness. And then that gave them sort of the gumption to go talk to more people that they had previously hated and to recognize also there that they were receiving love and kindness. And so, yeah, I, I, I want to be so cautious when I talk about these things because I, I certainly don't want to sound as though I'm advocating for like, everybody just be nice to Nazis. Like, I am not saying that. I'm just trying to have like a nuanced conversation about what some of the tangible solutions are and how to pull some of these people back if that's in fact something that they're ready for. And this film resonated with me in a really, really major way, as did the YouTube video I watched about Moonshot, where you know, you're know you providing sort of an empathetic intervention for people that are looking to join something like this. And so, yeah, that's... I hope I'm making myself clear. I know I'm not going to please everybody and I know there's going to be people that disagree and I'm at peace with that. But I do hope that I can at the very least make myself clear here that I'm, you know, I'm not advocating that every Nazi deserves a second chance. I'm just, I'm just advocating for our humanity, guys. That's it. Because I think, I think now more than ever, we really, really need it. I just want to touch on one last thing 
that really stood out to me in this documentary. I mean, the whole thing stood out to me, let me be clear, but uh, this this was a big one. Um, so Dia Khan goes and meets with a man named Pardeep Singh in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. And he is the son of someone who was killed in the 2012 attack by racist skinhead Wade Michael Page, who opened fire in a Sikh temple. He killed six people plus himself, and he injured an additional four. Um, One of the four that was injured was a man who was severely wounded, partially paralyzed, and he died in 2020 as a result of his injuries, and his death was officially listed as a homicide, which brings the death toll to seven. So, horrific event. Um, And Dia goes and interviews Pardeep, who, like I said, lost his father in the attack. And he takes her through the site where all of it happened. He's obviously very upset, um, but he's also curious, and he wants to understand what happened and why this happened. And at one point he says, quote, I want to understand why because something is fueling it. For anyone who is willing to live this life of putting themselves through this miserable existence of isolation, of violence, of hatred, what is it that fuels you to do that? End quote. So he's got this curiosity. He wants to understand how these people end up here. And so after the attacks, he reaches out to former white supremacist Arno Michaelis, and he's looking for answers. Um, and Arno is also someone that Dia interviews separately in the documentary. And so at one point, they all sit down together. And Pardeep and Arno at this point have formed a close friendship. And Pardeep says something really, really beautiful that I want to I wanna quote here. He says, quote, when we don't see ourselves in that person then we lose our ability as humans to do anything about it, end quote. The wisdom in that, man, like the ability for him, who he lost his dad and he lost his community members, um, for him to, to be able to see it in that way is just it's some truly fucking remarkable shit, man. Anyway, uh, Parjeep and Arno eventually go on to write a book together in 2018 after the documentary was made. And it's called The Gift of Our Wounds, A Sikh and a Former White Supremacist Find Forgiveness After Hate. I haven't read it. I just found out about it. So I'm, I'm probably going to order it because I'm just, uh, I'm really like touched. And I, I just think it's something extremely special that has, that has happened here between these, these two people. And that whatever they're putting out in the world, I want to read it because I feel like it's got to be worth a lot. So I think that I'm going to leave it here for today. I think we've covered a good lot of ground. Um, If you are interested in checking out my resources, you can go to my website, hellosubmarinepodcast.com. There, if you just click on the episodes tab and click on each individual episode, there's a show notes button and that's where you can find all of the resources. So I'm going to link the White Right documentary. I'm going to link everything I used for today, uh, the YouTube video with Moonshot. Um, and you can also find me on Instagram at Hello Submarine Podcast. And if you want to email me, you can email me at hellosubmarinepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you if you have any questions or feedback. 
Uh, Thanks again for anybody who's listening. It means so much to me that you're here. And yeah, we'll, we'll talk soon. Take care.